curiosity a true crime podcast i'm your host jade and thank you so much for listening to today's episode i really hope you're doing well and if not i hope that you get better so i've been gone for a really long time the last episode i posted was in september i was taken over by schoolwork and i like i've mentioned before i just didn't want to rush and put out an episode just to put out one And I had this grand idea of just coming back for the new year once I have a much better schedule that works for me. So, thank you so much for your patience. And it is the new year. I don't have any New Year's resolutions besides to, like, stick to a routine in the morning. That is really it. I don't really have any grand plans, just taking it day by day. I hope you all are having a great 2020, 2022, is that right? Yeah, 2022. It's just, you know, another day, take it day by day, that's my biggest advice, but let's get on with the episode. So, the last episode I posted, we talked about the murder of Adrian Jones And this week, we are going to be talking about the disappearance and murder of Heli Crafts. And fun fact about this case, this was the first episode of Forensic Files. So if you are a big fan of Forensic Files, I suggest you go and watch this episode. So without further ado, let's get started. Heli Nielsen was born on July 4th, 1947 in Denmark. She was the only child to her parents, and Heli was someone that loved school, and in school she learned a bunch of languages such as French, English, German, Norwegian, and Swedish. Now, learning more languages gave her more opportunities around the world. She went to school in England and then became an au pair in France. If you don't know what an au pair is, it is a caregiver from a different country who becomes part of the family, takes care of the kids, and does all the nanny things, like helps kids with homework, feeds them, that kind of stuff. They just live in a different country. Back in the days, like in the 60s and 70s, to become a flight attendant, there were a lot of requirements beauty requirements, basically, such as you had to be a certain weight, certain height, if you had long blonde hair, blue eyes, just attractive in general in their eyes, you stood a chance of being hired. I even saw an article saying that to be a flight attendant, you couldn't have kids or be married. My guess is because you would be away from home, or they thought you're married, and have kids immediately know no job for you. I don't know what their thought process was back then, but those were some of the requirements. 
Ellie Crafts had long blonde hair, she had high cheekbones, and her personality was something that turned heads. She became a flight attendant at Capital Airways, where she would go to and from Africa, and Heli thought this was the perfect job for her. If you love to travel and see the world, especially for free, because you're a flight attendant, it's the perfect job. And that's why Heli loved it so much. She spoke multiple languages, so she was able to communicate with people from all over the world, and she loved to travel, so it was a 10 out of 10. She then got a job in Copenhagen, the capital of Denmark, at a different airline, and she was able to go to more places. She was sent to Miami to train and was first in her class because she was already a flight attendant, so it was nothing new to her. Flight attendants and pilots are in the same line of work. They mingle, they stay in the same hotel, they're in the same vicinity. In 1969, she meets a man by the name of Richard Crafts, who is a 31-year-old pilot. Richard was a popular pilot. He was a ladies' man. Women were just attracted to him. So Richard would date the flight attendants for the world to see. It wasn't like a, oh, we work together, let's keep this under wraps so no one knows. He didn't really care for that. Richard would talk about how he loves to live an adventurous life. He was in the Marines and talked about being in the CIA and being part of some combat mission, but that wasn't verified information that said, yes, it was true, or no, it's not. He just said it. Richard Crafts was born in New York in 1937, and he had two older sisters. His father was a rich businessman in Manhattan, and his father would move the family to a much quieter town in Connecticut. Richard's father was a World War I pilot and played football. Once Richard was finished with high school, he went to college for a while and dropped out because school was just not for him. After dropping out, he joined the Marines in 1956, and in the Marines, he became a helicopter pilot. He became a pilot and was stationed in Korea and Japan, where he flew planes for Air America. Now, allegedly, he was part of some CIA mission, and he flew some of the planes for the mission, allegedly. And 10 years later, in 1966, he leaves the Marines. In 1969, when he met Heli, it turned out he was already engaged to another woman. In 1975, Heli becomes pregnant with their first child. Heli and Richard got married in November 1975. Heli's friends didn't like one ounce of Richard, and they would let Heli know that as well. During her pregnancy, she told her friends that she would never forgive Richard for how he treated her, and they ended up having two more children together. After having children, both Heli and Richard went back to work. 
Now, they lived pretty well off financially. The family's income was $125,000 a year, which in 2021-2022, today's time, it is $414,000 a year. They lived in the top 5% of wage workers in America, so they were wealthy. Because they had three kids and they went back to work, they hired an au pair, a 19-year-old girl named Dawn. Heli was seen with bruises on her face, and her friends were highly concerned. They went to the police, but the police were hesitant to talk to Richard because in 1982, Richard became an auxiliary police officer. He wasn't being paid to do this job, he just spent a lot of time in the station. An auxiliary police officer is a part-time policeman, but he doesn't respond to calls, but he would still go out there once they were being called. He bought his own police car, which was called the Crown Victoria, and he made it into his own police car by adding a radio, adding the stickers on the outside, and the lights. Richard had this habit of disappearing for a couple of days, leaving his wife and their three kids. Richard was still in his old ways of seeing multiple women while being married to Helly. Richard was very mean and stingy when it came to money. He would take Helly's money and use it to buy things that they would need around the house, and then take his own money and buy fun things, but not for the family, for himself. Everything he bought was for himself. He was really into guns, and he would go to gun shows and buy guns and all the ammo in the world. It turns out that he had so many guns and ammo, it was enough to arm 50 men. He would just buy a bunch of random things, like lawnmowers and lawn equipment, but he never used them. In September 1986, Helly found out that Richard was having an affair, and she was going to file for a divorce. She goes to a divorce lawyer and hires a private investigator named Keith Mayo. Keith kept tabs on Richard and snapped pictures of Richard kissing and hugging another woman outside her house in New Jersey. Helly confided in her friends and to her mother. She even told one of her closest friends, Quote, if anything happens to me, don't think it was an accident. End quote. On November 18, 1986, Helly's friend, who was also a flight attendant, dropped her off at home after coming off of a flight from Frankfurt, Germany. Her plane landed at the JFK airport in New York, and she and the other flight attendant drove back home. That night, it began to snow, and ended up being a huge snowstorm, so no one is going to be outside in such a horrible storm. Then the houses in the area experience a power outage. The next day, there was still no power. Richard woke up his children and told the nanny that he's taking the children to his sister's house in Westport, Connecticut, because she has power where she's at. And Dawn, the nanny, notices that Helly isn't going with them, or she has no idea where she is. And Dawn asks 
you know, like, where is Mrs. Crafts? And Richard would say, oh, she got up early and went to work. She'll be back later. The three kids and the nanny went to his sister's house and he came back home. And the power did come back on and then he went to pick up the kids and Dawn. On December 20th, Richard gets a call from Helly's colleagues asking where she was because she didn't show up for work. And she didn't let them know, like, hey, I won't be coming in today. It was just really strange for them. Richard told the colleague that he just got off the phone with her and she is in Denmark visiting her mother who is sick. He said she took her stuff with her and the car would be in the airport parking lot, which was true. Helly's car was in the parking lot. When other people asked where Helly was, Richard would completely change his story. First, he said she was in Denmark with her mother. The next, she was in the Canary Islands with a friend. Or he would say, I have no idea where she is. And this was concerning because, like I mentioned before, Helly told her friends, if something happens to me, don't think it was an accident. Richard would never acknowledge that Helly wanted a divorce because of the pictures she saw. He would act as if nothing happened. And all of a sudden, when she tries to get him to sign the divorce papers, she goes missing. One of Helly's friends decided to call Helly's mother in Denmark to fact check all of this. And Helly's mother said, she's not here and we haven't talked in some weeks and no, I'm not sick. Because they were so worried and scared for Helly, they decided to go to the police. Two weeks after Helly was last seen. Her friends spoke to the police and the police are like, his wife is missing and the husband wasn't the one to report her missing? It seems sketchy. So they bring in Richard for questioning and they ask him, where's your wife? And he says, I don't know. He told police that on November 19th, she woke up, packed her bags, and just left. So the police are like, then why tell everyone a different story? And he tells police he was embarrassed that his marriage wasn't working out and Helly wanted divorce and left him. And he didn't want anyone knowing that. Police were still suspicious of him, so they asked him if he would take a lie detector test, and he told them yes. So they ask him a bunch of questions pertaining to Helly, and he passes the test. And then again, Ted Bundy did pass his lie detector test. For a while, police had no leads at all. They talked to Helly's friends, colleagues, family, and no one knew anything. Until they interviewed the craft's nanny, Dawn. She told them the events leading up to when she disappeared. Dawn said that looking back, she found it strange how, after the snowstorm, Richard wanted her and the kids out of the house immediately. At first, she didn't question it, but now it just seemed strange to her. Dawn also told the police that after she went missing, she saw a dark stained patch in the carpet in the master bedroom about the size of a grapefruit. 
But then that patch of the carpet was cut out. Don asks Richard what happened to the patch in the carpet and what the stain was, and he told her it was from a kerosene heater. So they were thinking that it was blood. Don also told the police that there was a freezer in the garage, and as soon as Helen goes missing, the freezer goes missing. Police then go back to Richard and ask him about the patch of carpet that is now missing, and Richard tells them that he threw it in the landfill. Keith Mayo, the private investigator that Helly hired, decided to go to the landfill and look for the patch of carpet because he was convinced that Richard had something to do with Helly going missing. And you know what landfills look like, right? They're just tons and tons of trash. It takes a whole lot of patience and commitment to search for something in there. After one day, Keith Mayo found the patch of carpet and gave it to the police, and the police gave it to a forensic scientist. But the result came back, and it was not blood. This gave police a setback because they were really hoping that the patch of carpet would lead them to something. So with nowhere else to go, they decided to look into Richard. They look into his credit card records just to see if there was anything that he bought that wasn't normal. On the day that Helly went missing, Richard bought new bedding, new sheets, and a new comforter. That struck them as odd, but not really, because it was bedding. There's nothing suspicious about buying new sheets. But they kept asking themselves, who buys brand new bedding when their wife disappears? But wait, there's more. There's more. The day before Helly disappeared, on November 18th, 1986, Richard rented a wood chipper machine and a U-Haul truck. These items struck the police as definitely odd, because why did he need a wood chipper and a truck as soon as his wife goes missing? And either way, if his wife goes missing or not, why do people need a wood chipper? That is, I don't think... That is a necessity in life. Maybe it's just me. Police then apply for a search warrant to look into his house to see if they can find more than what they found on the credit card records. On December 25th, 1986, they were granted the search warrant and Richard had taken his three kids to Florida for the holidays, so no one was there. As police are looking through the house, they find a king-size mattress that was turned over on its side, and when they turned it over, they see a dark stain that they believe is blood. They cut out a piece for the forensic scientists to test for blood, and all they could get from the blood was that it was blood, it belonged to a female, and the blood type was O, and Heli's blood type was O. The blood stain pattern analysis studied the stain on the mattress and determined that the blood was splatter. It wasn't just a giant circle. 
it showed that someone was hit with something using a lot of force. This was the police's first piece of evidence. It wasn't the strongest piece of evidence because, sure, it was blood, but they didn't know how to connect it to Heli or positively say, yes, this is her blood. This story started to get picked up by the media and started to get a lot of attention. It was unusual to them because how does someone at home go missing during a snowstorm because everyone is inside? With this case getting attention, more tips started coming into the police. And on December 29th, they get a tip from a man named Joseph Hine, who is a snow plower driver. He says that on November 19th, 1986, he was taking the snow off the ground so people could drive the next day. At 3.30 a.m., he saw a man outside in the middle of the snowstorm wearing an orange poncho, using a wood chipper machine, and he was using it like feeding the machine, like putting something through it. The wood chipper was facing the lake, called Lake Zor. And of course, this is odd, because what is a man doing using a wood chipper in the middle of the night? In a snowstorm? Seems weird seems eye-catching, if you ask me. Joseph said he saw the man two times, so because it was strange, he got a good look at the man, and he was pretty sure that the man was Richard Crafts. The police go to Lake Zor, and they find wood chippings, and essentially what they were looking for were human remains. They had this idea that maybe Richard had put Heli's body through the wood chipper. Over the next few days, police find 56 small human bone chips, more than 2,600 blonde human hair strands, human tissue, a toenail with pink nail polish, and it matched Heli's pink nail polish bottle that was found in the house. They found type O blood, the same as Heli's, a tooth with a dental crown, and Heli had a dental crown, and they found the tip of a finger. And altogether, this weighed three ounces. Police kept looking along the riverbanks to see if they could find anything else. They found some shredded paper, and it was a mail that was addressed to Heli Crafts. They also found bluish-greenish fabric along the riverbank, which they believed was Heli's nightgown. The police also got dive teams to search the lake, and at the bottom of the lake, they found a chainsaw that had human tissue and blonde hair in the crevices of the chainsaw. On the chainsaw, the serial number was scratched off. Now, the reason someone scratches off a serial number is so that they won't be able to trace where it was bought and who bought it. Police were able to make out the numbers on the chainsaw and went to a chainsaw shop in Newtown. 
and they spoke to the owner trying to see who purchased a chainsaw with this exact serial number. The owner looked through his receipts and found the exact serial number, and on the receipt, it was signed by Richard Crafts. On January 13th, 1987, police went to Richard's home to arrest him, but he wouldn't let them in. The police chose to wait for Richard to come out instead of breaking down the door because his three kids were inside and they didn't know if he would harm the children if anyone got close or if he would harm himself. Eventually, Richard did come out of the house and was arrested and charged with murder. Richard pleaded not guilty and the case went to trial. The trial didn't take place in the same town because it became such a popular case, so they moved to New London, Connecticut, and the trial began in May 1988. The prosecutor's argument was that Richard killed his wife because she wanted a divorce and he didn't. The police and prosecutor told the jury the events of the night she was murdered. The prosecution says that on the night she put the kids to bed at around 8 p.m., before changing into her nightgown, which was the bluish-greenish fabric, and then checked the mail. Richard and Helly had an argument because Richard was upset about her wanting a divorce, and he refused to sign the papers. He wanted her to stay in this marriage while he was being unfaithful to her, and he knew that she knew that he was cheating, yet he refused to sign the papers. I don't understand people. I really don't. When Helly got back into her room, Richard struck her in the head with a blunt object. Some sources say it was a hammer, and another source says that it was a police flashlight. He hit her in the head, which caused the blood to splatter on the mattress. They believe that Richard carried her body to the freezer in the garage, and this freezer has never been found. Police were never able to find it, and no one knows what Richard did with the freezer. Richard leaves the body in the freezer, goes upstairs, and tries to clean the blood out of the mattress. On November 19, 1986, he woke up his children and the nanny and took them to his sister's house. And then he goes to purchase the chainsaw and the wood chipper. He gets Helly's body and puts it in the truck and drives to Lake Zor, where he uses the chainsaw to dismember and run it through the wood chipper. The jury deliberated for 17 days after a four-month trial and came back with one man saying Richard didn't kill his wife and everyone else saying he was guilty. The one man on the jury was convinced that Richard was innocent and was so upset that no one else thought that, so he left and just stormed off so the judge had to declare a mistrial. The second trial started in 1989 and they did the same thing. The prosecutor presented their case and the defense did the same. The trial went on for two months and on November 21st, 1989, after eight hours of deliberating, 
the jury came to a verdict. They found Richard Crafts guilty of the first-degree murder of his wife, Helly Crafts. Richard never admitted to the murder and was sentenced to 50 years in prison. He was released from prison in January 2020 for good behavior after serving about 30 years. He was sent to a halfway house in New Haven, Connecticut, and he was released from the halfway house, so he's now a free man at 84 years old. The private investigator, Keith Mayo, passed away in 1999 due to injuries sustained from a car accident, and Richard's sister chose to raise the three children. This trial was the first to allow cameras into the courtroom in the state, and the first murder conviction in the state of Connecticut without a body. And that is the end of today's story. I would love to know what you guys think. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for next week's episode that comes out every Thursday. You can follow my Instagram at criminalcuriositypod where you can see the pictures of the case. I also have a TikTok just so you can get like a general, general, I said that wrong, general idea of what the case is going to be about. It's at Criminal Curiosity Pod as well. This podcast is available on all podcast platforms such as Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. If you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review and rating because it helps me out so much. Spotify now has ratings, so all you have to do is type in Criminal Curiosity and you will see a little star to leave a rating. It would be very helpful and very much appreciated. You can also request any cases that you have through Instagram or Gmail, which I will have in the description box below. And please be safe out there. Look out for one another. Until next time, bye everyone.